all scripture is fun, but we have some really fun scripture to go through um, go through this morning. Um, I'm going to read the Beatitudes to us. So I'm going to read Matthew 5, um, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into um, one sentence um, that's found in Matthew 5, uh, verse 14. I'm going to read this to us. So if you've got your Bibles, open to Matthew 5. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it, in, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Father, we want to thank you for this passage of Scripture. Father, as we gather as your people today, I want to pray that your spirit would be hovering over us, that we'd be a people who are so receptive to your truth, that we'd be a people who want to change. And Father, I want to thank you that we would be a people that would want to change and know that we cannot change without you. Father, I want to pray that you would help us to be a people who are humble this morning. Help us to press into you. Help us to cast our gaze towards you and to receive the grace that you so readily give us. Father, I pray over my words today. I pray that your word would be on my tongue. Father, we thank you that you have a message for us that you have a message for us as a community. Father, I want to pray that we would experience your grace and your mercy and your joy as we gather in your word right now. And Father, we want to thank you that you're good. In your name, amen. Well, um, I, had a, I had a month off. Um, we, uh, we welcomed little, little Avery um, two months ago. And, uh, and I had a month off that, with the family that was really, really good. We, um, we basically just went to local parks every day and, and got coffee. And, and that, was, that was basically the extent of our adventures. But it was a really special time for, for Amy and, and me where we just were able to focus on, on our family and, and just slow down and just stop. And so I was catching up on, on some of the sermons that were early on in, in this series. And, 
And I wanted to start by just saying, um, I think Andrew nailed it early on. I think it was week two, um, where he talks about the idea that the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, they're not a prescriptive list. This isn't a list, a checklist of, for us to just check off that we can go and do. Um, this is an overflow of grace. This is an overflow of the way that the Spirit is working within us. And, and this is the overflow of what it looks like. We can't force humility. We can't force mercy. We can't force ourselves to be peacemakers. These are, are things, these are attributes, these are postures that the Spirit overflows in our life. Augustine was a guy, a theologian. Um, he was a, a philosopher in, in the 300s. Augustine um, was, a, was a guy who shaped much of our theology today. Much of how we interpret scripture is shaped by Augustine. He was an incredible thinker, an incredible, um, an incredible writer. And Augustine had this, had this fascination with this line in, in the Beatitudes in Matthew, Matthew 5, um, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Augustine was fixated on this one verse. Um, it was absolutely key to everything he thought about in terms of Scripture and in terms of, of his walk with God. For they will see God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. And one of Augustine's big ideas, one of his big revelations was the idea that he couldn't force a clean heart. He couldn't force this grace upon himself. He had to receive that. And when we receive that grace, we are able to see God for the first time. We are able to see him in all his joy, in all his creativity, in all his beauty. For Augustine, this one verse was, was huge. In Ezekiel 36, um, verse 24, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, we see this posture in the Old Testament of the way in which God overflows in our life and changes us. We can't force grace. We can't force change not from a spiritual sense, but there is this overflow that the Spirit does in our lives. In verse 22 of Ezekiel 36, we read this. It says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations which, where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. And then we get to verse 24 and this section, this repetition of what God does in our lives is just beautiful. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in my land and I get the land I gave your forefathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. The easiest trap that we can fall into is one of religion where we feel that we can force change. 
where we feel that we can create a new heart within us. And this passage in Ezekiel that is just so profound, we read that God is the one that will do that for us. God is the one that will remove our heart of stone. God is the one that will give us a heart of flesh. God is the one that will help us and teach us to follow his decrees, that will excite us to follow his law, that will excite us to follow his ways. We can't manipulate God. We can't force this. It's an overflow of joy in our heart. It's an overflow of the work the Spirit is readily doing in our heart. And when we come to the Sermon of the Mount, we're not coming and looking at this in terms of religion. What Jesus is teaching us is the complete opposite of that. He is teaching us that there is this overflow of the Spirit that is happening in our lives and the postures that will take place come naturally when we are in right relationship with Jesus. And so with that lens, I want to jump into this one line today and we're going to break it into two sections. We're going to sit in one sentence and it's, it's a really beautiful sentence. So in Matthew 5 verse 14, the first part says this. It says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We live in a time where labels um, uh, are everywhere. We hear them all the time. You are good at this. You are good at that. I remember as a kid, I had a cricket coach. And the cricket coach told me, you are very good at the cover drive. And that excited me. And I am. I was very good at the cover drive. It was a, it was a great shot that I knew. But this, kid, this, this coach for me growing up, he, he encouraged me and he said this, this over me as a kid. And if you were to talk to me as a 13-year-old, like cricket was my whole life. That's all I cared about. And I had this coach who just encouraged me in this like really simple part of the game. You are good at this. As a kid, I had lots of different people encourage me in different things. And for instance, this coach, he encouraged me in cricket and like I, I, it excited me. That became part of my identity as a kid. That became part of who I was because I was good at it. And I wasted so many years of my life playing that silly game. As a kid, you hear, like, I heard all this encouragement in my life. You are good at this. You're good at that. But I also heard lots of stuff that wasn't that good. I remember being in primary school and I remember this confrontation between these two kids that, that I was a part of and I was there. And I remember this one kid calling the other kid. He said to them, you are dumb. And I remember like I'm 30 years old and that wasn't said to me, but I remember that exchange that happened. If you think about the things that have been said over your life, there's probably, hopefully, been plenty of things that have been really positive. Plenty of things that have been deeply encouraging for you. But I'm guessing there's been things that have been said over your life that have been harmful, that have hurt. There are probably things that even, even, um, even older as we get on in life, that we look back in our childhood years and we still remember these moments for us. We still remember when people spoke these things over our lives. We've been looking at these series throughout the year on identity. And the words that we speak over each other, whether they're good or bad, play a role in forming our identity. At the moment, our, our boys um, are entering new stages of life. Eli's, Eli's four years old. He's at a fascinating time. I don't know how any of you got through raising four-year-olds, but anyway. We've, we've had this little, um, this little joke out of nowhere. He, he came up to me one day and he said, you are a poo. I just looked at him, I'm like, where did you pick that up from? He's been going to preschool, I suppose, you know, getting a few influences there. 
But every single day, he'll just remind me that, Dad, you're a poo. You're a wee. And he just, like, he just repeats this over and over. He speaks that over my life. There's stupid things. There's silly things that we hear all the time that are spoken out over our lives. But then there are things that hurt. Then there are things that we carry. They stick with us. And we might be able to regulate them. We might be able to push, push them into the background. But there's things that we carry as we get older. Now, we know that we live in a world that is not just physical. We live in a world that is spiritual. And so we are able to encourage each other as people. We are also able to hurt each other as people. There are things that we hold on to and things that um, harm us from our past. But we also know that we live in a world that is spiritual. We also know that there is, um, there is an angel that is not good. There is Satan who is whispering lies and whispering noise in our lives. How often are you hearing things in your mind where you are being told you are nothing, where you are being told you're not good enough, where you are being told you're not funny enough, you're not worthy? How often do we allow these lies into our mind, these little narratives, these little voices into our minds? I had a moment a few weeks ago where Eli is four years old And he's at a stage of life where he's been going through some huge highs and he's been going through some huge lows. And there are moments for me and Amy as parents where we're wrestling. It's been pretty easy, pretty cruisy up until now. But there's moments for us where he's been really, really hard work. We've had to really work on how we love him. There's been times where he's having tantrums and we're trying to work out how do we love him in this. There was a night where he he absolutely lost it. He'd been going berserk for about an hour. He'd been, he'd been quite harsh with us. And I ended up taking him outside and he was going nuts. And I was trying to work out how do I love him. I was, it was one of my better moments as a dad. I've had lots of knocker ones, but this was one of my better ones. And I was really calm with him. And I took him outside and he was going absolutely nuts. And I took him outside and I said, mate, look at the moon. And all of a sudden, after an hour of just screaming at us and losing it at us, he looks up and goes, oh, yeah, the moon looks amazing, daddy. That's incredible. Five seconds earlier, he'd been, been giving it to us. And I had this moment where, um, where I took him outside and I helped him and I walked him through it. But I had this moment later that night where I was lying in bed. It was about 3 a.m. in the morning and Satan just crept on into my room. And he just started repeating this lie in my mind, you are a bad dad. And over and over, I just had this lie that was going through my mind saying, you are a bad dad. And it's not something that I stand here now and go like, oh, it was a really easy thing for me. I didn't sleep the rest of the night and sleep is really precious in my life. I, I, I lay in bed and just had this thing, this voice that was going over and over that, that wasn't just this narrative in my mind, it was affecting everything of, of who I am. Satan does this with us. You may or may not be getting told you're a bad dad or a bad mom. But he is trying to manipulate. He is trying to get into your mind and into your heart. He is trying to speak lies over your life. You are this. You are that. You are not worthy. You are annoying. You are lonely. You are unlovable. And so we come to this passage today and there's all this stuff that we are carrying. Stuff from our past, stuff from maybe 40 years ago, and stuff that we're going through this week. There are lies that we're constantly hearing. We come to this passage in Matthew 5, verse 14. And this is what Jesus says of us. You are the light of the world. 
You are the light of the world. One of the things that's changed my life over the last probably two years is this revelation of what love actually is. So love is, 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 is found in two ways. Love is a laying down of our life for our friends, for our neighbours, for those around us. And the second part of love that we're taught in Scripture is that it's having a greater vision for your neighbour's life than you actually have for your own. I think very often we understand this first part, laying your life down for your neighbour. But in practice, what it means is that we get excited for the futures of the people around us. We get excited for their kids, for their families. We deeply care about those around us, even more than we care about ourselves. It's a radical posture, a radical idea in 2018. But here is Jesus, where we are really good at having a small vision for each other's lives, where we are really good at boxing each other, where we are really good at making each other smaller. Jesus is really good at making us bigger. Jesus has a greater vision for our lives than we could possibly have for our own. You are the light of the world. In Galatians 2 verse 20, we're told why we are the light of the world. It says this, it says, For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Do we believe this walking into church this morning? For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. We are walking with Jesus inside us. We are walking in the new life. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, we're told the old life is gone, the new life has come. And as we walk into this place today, as we walk out of this place today, we are a new creation. We are told in Matthew 5 verse 14 that we are the light of the world. Where have we heard that before? In John 8 verse 12, we're told, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 1 verse 4 to 9, we read this. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. For I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2 verse 20 says. And I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. This is our new identity. This is who we are. And when Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 14 to those who are listening, you are the light of the world, he's not mixing his words. He's not mistakenly saying it. He is saying you are the light of the world because you carry him inside you. In a world that is full of darkness, in a world that is full of anxiety, and in a world that is full of, um, of war, in a world where we turn on each other so easily, in a world where we are able so easily to speak death over each other, 
where we are able to be harsh to each other. Jesus is saying that our new identity is that we are the light of the world. We are coming in here as Christ. We are coming in here as a family who carry Jesus within us. We are scattering throughout Sydney during the week as the light of the world. We are postured in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces. In the different spheres of influence that we are in, we are postured there as light in the darkness. Not because of anything that we have done, but because his grace has overflowed in our life. You are the light of the world. Matthew 5 verse 14 goes on to say this. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, a city we know is a stronghold, especially in olden times. still is today. In olden times, it was where the military would be kept. So it was a place that was safe. There were resources. Trade would go through cities. It was a place of safety. It was a place of shelter. It was a place of community. Now, a city on a hill was at a great advantage. A hill is a powerful position. Sun Tzu, who writes The Art of War, is very big throughout his, um, his works on going to the high ground. Find the hill. Find the, the, the place where you are above other people. It's a military strategy that's a really fundamental aspect, um, has been a fundamental aspect throughout human history. Being on a hill is a powerful position. You can see everything. And it's very, very difficult to attack someone who is up a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so one of the things, as we look at this one little line, as we break this down, we have to ask the question, what sort of city is this? Because if this is a worldly city, then a worldly city is going to be anxious and it's going to be selfish. It's going to be concerned completely with its own desires and its own needs. If it's on a hill, it finds itself in a position of power and a position of strength. It's focused on itself. Now, if it's a heavenly city, if it's a city of light, then it becomes a hope to everyone that sees it. As Jesus says here, a city on a hill, you can't, you can't hide it away. It is there for everyone to see. And so if it is a city of light, if it is a city, a heavenly city, then it is able to be seen from everyone who is in the valley. A city on a hill is a posture of hope because it chooses to focus not on itself, but to prioritize those who are struggling in the valley below it. It uses its position of strength to help the wanderers, to help the sick, to help the lonely, those who hunger and thirst, those who are meek, those who are persecuted, those who wish to see. The city on the hill cares about those who are walking in the valley. It cares about those who are struggling. If you think about this idea, it's a simple idea, but it's the very nature, it's the very heart of what the gospel is. Jesus is the city on the hill. When Jesus is crucified on Golgotha, he epitomizes, he becomes the city on the hill. With all his power and authority, he chooses to love. 
He chooses to lay his life down for us. He chooses to have a greater vision for our lives than we could possibly have for our own. He takes what is a position of power and a position of strength and he uses that to lay his life down for us. In Matthew 27 verse 32, we read what this looks like. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one to his right and the other to his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the God that created the universe. This is the God that created the planets and the sun and the moon. This is the God that created gravity. This is the God that spoke the ocean into existence. This is the God that created the cells in our body that heal our body. This is the God that created dinosaurs. This is the God that created life itself and humanity with a breath. This is a God who is all-powerful, who is on this cross at the top of the hill at Golgotha, and he is being mocked. He is being mocked by the soldiers there. He is being mocked by the pastors there. He is being mocked by the theologians who are, who are standing there. This is the God who is, has all power and all authority. At his fingertips, he could do whatever he wanted to do. And the way he chooses to be a city on the hill, the way he chooses to use the high ground, the way he chooses to use the position of power that he has is to lay his life down for those around him and to have a greater vision for their lives than he has for his own. This is so countercultural. This is the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount. This is how he teaches us what the city on the hill looks like. As a church, we are called to be a city on the hill. We are called to be light in the darkness. Everything we do should be focused on overflowing Jesus in a lonely, isolated, selfish and sad society. The city's health is hugely important. Our church's health is really, really important. How we love each other tells the world who we are. But the priority of this church, the marker of that health, is how we view the ones that are wandering in the valley. It's how we help those who are lonely. It's how we help those who are struggling. It's how we help those who are poor and who are marginalized. As a church, we are called to be a city on the hill. We are called to be a city on the hill in Dural. We are called to be a city on the hill in Sydney. We are called to be a city on the hill in the world in which we live. And we are a church that gathers. We gather on Sundays. We gather during the week. We are a family that gathers. But we are also a family that spreads out. We are a church that is scattered. 
We are a church that is called throughout the greater parts of Sydney to go and share his good news, to go and show his glory and reveal his glory, to go and be light in the darkness in the world in which we live. How do we use the positions in which we are in? If you're a teacher, how do you overflow with light and love to the kids that are under your care? For me growing up, a huge part of my testimony was a a guy named Macca at Pacific Hills, a PE teacher who's been there for the longest time. And during times in my life that were really difficult, he was that city on the hill for me. He was that posture of light. He was that posture that constantly joyfully showed me a better way of life. He was that posture for me where I was a teenager that was hugely emotional. He was that rock for me, that hope, that light in the distance that wasn't hidden. He was that city on the hill. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, what does it look like for you to lay your life down for your kids, to lay your life down for your grandkids, to have a greater vision for their lives than you have for your own? What does it look like for you to be a city on the hill where even in relationship, you have so much more power than they do. What does it look like for you to lay your life down for those who are little? If you're an employer, if you have people under your care, what does it look like for you to serve them? A guy named Simon Sinek is is a, a writer and he's a speaker. And they estimate that he's worth around $20 million now. His message is this. This is a guy who, who, who isn't a Christian. Serve those who are around you. Lay your life down for them. This is a guy who's worth $20 million. This is his message. Lay your life down for those around you. Where have we heard that before? There are principles throughout our world. There are principles throughout corporate, throughout business that are changing how we view people, are changing how we view leadership. And at the very um, crux of leadership is this simple idea that we lay our lives down for those around us, that we raise those around us up. If you're an employer, if you're in a workplace where you have people under your care, what does it look like for you to be a city on the hill? Where you go to them, where you love them, where you care for them, where you care for those under your care. Because the city of light doesn't use power. It loves those in the valley. It loves those who are struggling. And the city on the hill is a posture of hope because it chooses to prioritize those who are in the valley. How do we use our freedom? How do we use our money? How do we use our education? Are we selfish in the way that we use these things or do we use these things to bring other people up? Do we lay our lives down for those around us? This is the heart of what the gospel is. And for some of us, we need a fresh revelation of what the city is. For some of us, we've been wandering away from the city. We haven't spent time with Jesus in a long, long time. We haven't been refreshed by him. We haven't felt the overflow of that grace or that joy or that love in our life for too long. And although we know it, although we've experienced it, we've wandered. 
It's left us empty. It's left us lonely. One of Satan's biggest traps has filled us with guilt. So really simply, I want to encourage us today. I want us to be a church that is a city on the hill. I want us to be a church that has a posture where we raise up the people around us, where we lay our lives down for those around us. I want us to be a people who are missionaries in the world in which we live in Sydney. I want us to be a people who are scattered throughout this, this, um, this land in which we live and bring light and hope and grace to the people in which we are called to do life with. But the ways in which we do that is that we don't force it. We aren't able to create that. We can't manipulate that. It's a natural overflow of right relationship with Jesus. It's a natural overflow of when the Spirit is in control of our life, when the Spirit is free to do what it wants to do in our life. Our heart and our love for those around us increases dramatically. And so all I want to encourage us in today is one really simple idea, but it's to turn back to the city. It's to turn back to Jesus. If you're feeling bitter, if you're feeling like Ezekiel talks about, that your heart is one of stone and not one of flesh, there are things that you are holding on to. All I want to encourage us to do is turn back towards Jesus, turn back towards the cross. Because all of us are wandering. And what Jesus calls us to is calls us back to right relationship with him, which is the very preface, very nature of what the cross is. As we turn back to the city, as we turn back to Jesus, the message of the cross is a beautiful one because we are not called to make it all the way up the hill. The message of the prodigal son is that the son goes walking back to his father and what does his father do? His father goes running towards his son. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole of the Bible. He runs to his son. We are called just to walk back to the cross. We are called to cast our gaze towards Jesus. And when we do that, he will give us a new heart. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you that we are a people who come before you as light. Father, I want to thank you that we're not called to come before you with our guilt, that you have washed that clean. Father, I want to pray for those of us who are who are struggling in our relationship with you. I want to pray for those of us who feel distant, who feel like we've been in the valley for too long, who feel like we've been wandering away from the city for too long. Father, I want to pray that you would help us. I want to pray that you would just cleanse our heart, that you would free us. I want to thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. No matter how big our shortcomings are, your grace is so much bigger. And Father, I want to thank you that you're a God that just doesn't leave us. You're a God that comes running towards us. So Father, I want to pray that you would stir us, that you would remind us in the deepest parts of who we are that we are light, that if we carry your name, if we carry the name of Jesus, that 
that we are a new creation, that we carry your light within us and the darkness does not understand it. The darkness will never overcome it. Father, I want to pray that you would help us to live as children of light, that you would help us to walk in your freedom, to walk in your joy, that relationship with you wouldn't be burdensome, that it would be the most exciting aspect of our lives. And Father, as you renew us, as you renew our hearts, as you fill us with grace afresh, Father, I want to pray that we would overflow that grace in the world that we live. That we would not be people of position. But Father, we would be people of grace. That we would be people of love. That we would be people who are concerned with raising those around us up. That we would be concerned with your glory above all else. And that we would do whatever we can to point people towards you because we know that you are the light. Because we know that you are the only hope. Because we know that you're good. So as a community, help us to do that better, Father. As individuals, as we go out into our worlds, help us to do that better. And Father, we just pray for a really deep joy. And Father, we thank you for who you are. Amen.